what I would like to see is actually an avalanche of companies that are in that area that see great opportunities and that need to raise significant amounts of capital. Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Innovations in Sustainable Finance. This is your host, Julian Kölbel. I'm Assistant Professor for Sustainable Finance at the University of St. Gallen. And today we're going to connect two acronyms together. That's one IPO, Initial Public Offering, and ESG, the infamous shorthand to talk about anything related to environmental, social and governance issues in business. And to help me with that, I'm very happy to talk to Per Einar Ellefsen. Welcome to the show, Per. Thanks, Julian. It's great to have you. Uh, per is a CEO and founder of Amundsen IM, a European-focused investment firm that invests in equity, but really specializes in the primary market. That means fresh capital for companies. And I'm looking forward to talk about the role of ESG factors in this market, specifically from the angles of risk, investment performance, and impact. So uh, I'm really happy to have you here, Per, uh, to kick us off. Uh, you can introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about what you do. Of course, I'm really happy to be on the show as well. Uh, so I founded uh, Amundsen Investment Management uh, together with my partner and chief investment officer, Gauthier Rousseau, uh, two years ago. Uh, Gauthier and I had worked at the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, NBIM, for almost 10 years. Uh, there I was responsible for the global equity index portfolio. So the very large equity portfolio where the fund owns uh, something like 9,000 companies. And Gauthier, he was responsible for the fund's equity capital market strategy. That is, he was responsible for all the investments in IPOs, so initial public offerings, as well as follow-on transactions. So when there's large offerings of shares in already listed companies. Uh, during our time there, we actually realized that there was a very strong need for investors who were prepared uh, to engage actively in the IPO process. Because as you know, fund management, especially uh, in Europe and, and the US, has evolved uh, towards more passive management, more index, less active management, and there's basically less investors today who are ready to participate in the IPO process and give proper feedback. And that, it would seem, opens up an opportunity. So it's an opportunity for us, but it's a real challenge for the bankers and the companies that actually want to list, because uh, you can't do an IPO by yourself. You actually need to have uh, a number of interested investors. So this discussion uh, should not be seen as an investment recommendation. We will be talking about a number of companies, uh, but they're just examples of companies we have engaged in with in the past, and uh, they are not an investment recommendation. But we think that, I mean, IPOs play a fundamental role in actually allowing companies to uh, come to the market and then raise capital at the market, right? Uh, it's actually one of the best avenues for a company over time to raise equity capital. And uh, we think it's one of the most meaningful things you can actually do when you're in the, in the public markets. Yes, and I think that's also where the interest in that topic comes for, uh, from my side, because this is a situation where you're not just trading shares with other investors and maybe through that trade, you reveal information about the company, but it is actually about new capital that the companies typically want to deploy in, in new projects. They want to grow. So, so it's really about building stuff. Yep, definitely. Right. Maybe um, it would be good if you can walk us through the process of an IPO participation. So just that we know how that proceeds. Yeah, absolutely. So the IPO of a company has basically three main phases. Um, there's a first preparation phase where the company has to go through with its bankers, its lawyers, other advisors, you know, auditors, etc., to really make the company IPO ready. This phase mm -hmm. can take a year, take six months, but the company basically needs to prepare its accounts, its reporting, ensure it has the strategy uh, uh, well anchored to give a coherent equity story to investors when they actually start talking to them for the IPO. Can I just uh, um, interrupt you for a second uh, on this notion of equity story? I've heard it a few times. What, what do you guys mean when you say equity story? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a jargon term, right? So you, it's basically just the business model of the company and how the company plans to create value over time. 
it's very simple. And it depends on the company because some companies it will be, you know, very steady, low growth, but maybe they have some high margins. And um, some companies it's about internationalization and really growing quite aggressively. So it's really what, what determines how the company is going to look five years down the line uh, when the IPO is over and the company has played out its, uh, its strategy. But it seems also to be a way to refer to a convincing tagline why you want to participate in this IPO. That's what it boils down to, I think. It's, for, for investors, yes. I mean, it's important to know why they should participate. It's actually even more important to know why the company is looking to do an IPO. Because uh, in some cases, I it's, see. as you're saying, a very important point for the company to raise additional capital in order to finance a growth project, maybe raise some more debt, make some acquisitions. There's, a, there's all, all, all different reasons for raising money. But in some cases, it's really just an exit by a private equity owner. So then you have to ask, why should this company be listed? Why should it not sort of stay in private hands? Or it's a family who wants to list their company. They, they, uh, they've been owners for 100 years and uh, they uh, decide to list the company. So it's the equity story is about the company, but uh, what investors actually try to figure out is why uh, the company is doing an IPO. Very interesting. I think here I learned something. So I was interrupting you. After the first phase, what do we have next? Yeah, so just to finish up on the first phase, during the first phase, there is a certain involvement of investors, uh, but a select group of investors because the company and its bankers really need to get feedback on, as I said, this equity story, the planned valuation, um, and we'll talk a bit more about it, it's ESG credentials before they actually launch the IPO process. Uh, so that's typically when we get involved. Uh, but then once all this is ready, the company uh, decides to move ahead. Uh, then comes the second stage, the roadshow. So this usually lasts three to four weeks. Uh, and during that period, the company goes out and uh, engages with a wide panel of investors, uh, thanks to its banks and uh, is trying to convince, again, the wider investment base, investment community to, uh, to invest in the IPO. Then the last phase, of course, is the pricing of the IPO, the listing. But then actually the most important phase to me is uh, the evolution post-IPO. Uh, what happens to the company once it has actually become listed? It's moved over this milestone, but it actually needs to start delivering on its promises, right? Mm -hmm. So. And on our side, we, we enter the process, we're not advisors, we're active investors, but we really look at a lot of these IPOs because we consider that to be uh, one of the most interesting stages to engage with the company and, uh, and uh, learn more before the company lists. So we do our research on the company as early as possible, and we provide very active feedback to the banks, the management and the sellers during the whole process. What we think about uh, the company's business model, how we think it should be valued, uh, and uh, if we would be interested in investing or not. Great. So, so we have uh, equity story, roadshow listing, and then uh, after IPO trading, perhaps as four phases. And and you're telling us you get in early, um, and you already mentioned ESG as a keyword uh, in the first phase. I think so. In general, why? Do you look at ESG factors in in your investment process? Yeah, so ESG factors are interesting because they're, they historically haven't been very prominent in the IPO space. Uh, and but I'll, I'll borrow the words of uh, Alex Edmund. Uh, ESG is both extremely important and nothing special, right? Uh, in a way, it's nothing new. Uh, we consider it to be an integral part of company analysis, and it's something at uh, the Norwegian Sauer Wealth Fund, for example, that portfolio managers have been engaging in for a very long time. Um, but that we consider this to be part of sort of how we gain comfort with the company uh, as we go through the process. And that's also why we don't outsource CSC work to a rating provider or um, even an internal ESG analysis department. We do the work ourselves, right? The thing is, when you are a public market investor, you don't receive so much detail. You receive a lot of information from companies but you don't really see that much detail about what the company is actually doing. Uh, you have annual reports, you have prospectus, et cetera. But as an investor, we really need to ascertain the quality of the companies we invest in and figure out if that company actually warrants a premium or a discount to its already listed peers. And having a better handle on the ESG risks 
that we can get information on through the process um, is really helpful in terms of ascertaining the business in that way. So you would say the, the main reason is to, to really gain additional information or higher quality information as you piece together your view of, of what the company does and, and, and what uh, an appropriate value is. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the, again, higher quality companies tend to warrant uh, high multiples, right? And uh, I think it's important that a company that has uh, addressed its risks uh, related to climate, related to its stakeholders, uh, and has a proper governance, well over time, uh, probably warrant a better multiple than a company that doesn't address those risks. And, uh, and that brings me to the other aspect of uh, of the ESG importance in the investment processes. Again, this evolution of the company as a public company, because mm -hmm. there's a change when you go through an IPO in the shareholder base. You usually have one, maybe five investors pre-IPO. Maybe you'll have one private equity fund. Maybe you'll have a family, or maybe you'll have a few pre-IPO investors. But at the time of the IPO, you transition from that to having maybe 50 to 100 important investors. So you've been out on the roadshow, you convinced a number of institutional investors to, to chip in. And so your shareholder base diversified. But that's not the end goal. The end goal of a listed company is actually to, to reach several hundred to thousands of different stakeholders, shareholders. It can be retail shareholders, mm -hmm. it can be smaller funds in different geographies, but all that takes time. And today, if you actually want to reach a wider investment base, you just need to have the proper ESG disclosures. And you need at some point to get an acceptable, acceptable ESG score because funds that integrate into ESG into the process will look at you that way. So that's why we expect that as you have uh, positive ESG credentials, you are actually looking at a wider shareholder base over time. Right. So, and, and that already relates to the, the period after the IPO, of course. Um, uh, so let's um, sort of tease apart these various reasons why you might look at ESG factors uh, during the, you know, and during the process leading up to the IPO. So the first, perhaps we could call the, the risk side, and, and you already mentioned it. Um, maybe you can give us an example where sort of an ESG related insight perhaps led you to stay away from an IPO or was an important factor in your decision? Yeah. Um, I mean, the challenge we have today, to be honest, is that uh, there's just often not enough ESG disclosure, even though we think it's important and we push the companies to disclose as much as possible. There's actually very little. So you can have a prospectus for an IPO of more than 300 pages, but actually no mention of any significant ESG information on the way. So it does make it quite difficult as an investor. And of course, these are private companies at that point. So, so they're, they have to disclose very little. At yeah, all. it's true. Is it, that correct? It's, it's, it's a big transition. I mean, uh, and it depends a bit on, on the ownership, but definitely a company that's been in private hands, uh, will just have had less requirements for disclosure. It's changing because, uh, with the European regulation, for example, even private companies will have to disclose quite a lot. Um, but it's not something that's been common until now. So we, we do see a bit of difference, but depending on the owners. So, uh, for example, some private equity funds, uh, I'll take EQT for an example, which is a Swedish private equity uh, fund manager, uh, have been very early in ESG work because on their side as well, they need to uh, disclose to their investors and uh, help the companies uh, they have in their portfolio progress. So for example, EQT listed a company called Azilis in uh, September, 2021. Uh, it's a Belgian listed um, uh, specialty chemicals distributor. Um, mm -hmm. But they came to the IPO with a sustainability report for 2020 already published. So six weeks before the IPO. Uh, and uh, they didn't come with a sort of a recognized public markets ESG score, but they did have a rating from Ecovadis that does um, uh, ratings of private companies, mostly for supply, supply chain uses, but that was quite helpful, I think, to investors. 
So again, there's a difference between between owners, and I think it's going to evolve over time. But uh, but right now, there's uh, there's just not so much disclosure. In the case of Azeles, did that sustainability report then then help you to understand what what the risks are and to what extent they are mitigated? Uh, yes, uh, I mean uh, the sustainability report actually gave quite a lot of detail about what they considered to be the main risks in their business um, and how they addressed it. There's an interesting uh, stylized fact in the financial academic literature, which is that IPOs are systematically underpriced. So, so the the returns in the first day after listing is is on average positive. Um, and there are several explanations, but one very popular one is about. Um, sort of informed and uninformed investors, that uh, there are some investors who uh, really know the true value of the business. And then there's lots of tag along investors who who don't really, but they still participate. And then the, the explanation is that the uh, underwriters, they have to make a good offer so that the uninformed investors don't walk away over time uh, because they would be priced out uh, or they would be squeezed out uh, out of the attractive IPOs and they will you know, mainly participate in the unattractive ones. So, so there's this theory that you need to sort of make a good offer um, uh, for an IPO and that informed investors actually have a big advantage here. And, and I'm curious how, you know, that's sort of a long-established academic finding. Uh, do you see that in, in your practice? And uh, it seems that, you know, having more information and, and hopefully superior information by looking at some ESG issues selectively, of course, uh, would really add value in that case. Uh, yes, uh, that's definitely something we, we, we subscribe to. Um, you can... You can Think about it like this. Uh, first of all, the, the the market is for IPOs is not closed in the sense that the company and its selling shareholder are actually willing to give something away because um, they they want to get listed. Being listed is something that the company would want to do because then they can raise additional capital after it, right? And there's definitely a challenge in that if you suppose that the market of investors becomes completely passive and you just have, as you said, uninformed investors participating in IPOs, then you could actually end up having companies that do nothing with that IPO and attract investors, right? But the moment you have informed investors to step in, then it starts becoming a bit skewed where the informed investors will actually participate in the IPOs of the companies that have a proper business model, equity story, as we talked about. And the uninformed will uh, not necessarily participate and get allocations in those. Uh, on, on the ESG side, uh, I'll take it the other way around. Actually, I think it's I think it's a challenge because the um, the, the IPO sort of the IPO investments are in a sense a bit competitive. You you want to secure an allocation, right? Because as you're saying, the IPOs tend to go up. Now, the challenge is there's there's different ways of securing allocations, but uh, to us, the most important is to show the company and its bankers that we're serious investors and that we understand what the company is doing and actually provide uh, significant input into the process. So we add value to the process. Um, but of course, when we ask about uh, further disclosure of ESG factors, etc., uh, some, some investors are a bit worried about doing that because they think that then they will exclude themselves from the IPO. They won't actually get any allocation. So there is actually a, a challenge there. Uh, to us, this ESG feedback is just part of the process. We we want the company to become uh, well uh, sort of well established and have a successful life as a public company. So that's uh, also why we uh, we give that feedback during the process. And it may also be that um, there's a degree of finding a partner in the capital market right in the during the process of the ipo you can together with your underwriter uh to some extent um shape your investor base 
and and there might be companies who who want uh, an allocation to let's say ESG investors and other companies maybe don't. How, how do you see that? I, I think it's actually the only time when a company can shape its investor base, uh, which is also why it's given uh, quite a lot of uh, importance. And, and typically, companies want to have investors who they feel will understand the company and are not there as, as I said, momentum investors and will just walk away uh, right after it. And the reason being that uh, it ties back to what I said about the uh, broadening of the investor base. Uh, when you are a newly listed company, you're still quite vulnerable, even though you had a successful IPO, because uh, it's uh, over time, you're basically establishing trust with the market, right? And one of the most important parts about an IPO for a company is to actually deliver on what they were saying during the IPO process, when they publish their first results, when they uh, meet with investors again. And, uh, and that takes time. And when you do that over time, you build trust and you build up your investor base. Uh, of course, for us, it's, we participate in the IPO, uh, we stick around after. And for example, if a company comes back six months to a year later and needs to raise additional capital, well, we're already very comfortable with the case. We know exactly what they need to raise and we had uh, thought about it at the time of the IPO and uh, we're ready to engage again. Um, but I mean, th this is a, it's, it's, it's always a challenge for companies to, to build that track record. And, and one of the uh, sort of historical ways to do it was, again, financial results, uh, company size and liquidity, which then allowed you to enter indices and become a more widely held company. I think today you actually need to, uh, to think about how you're going to be positioned with respect to ESG funds as well, because uh, they will be an important owner over time. Yeah, so maybe let's transition to that theme a little bit to sort of the investment side of it after IPO. Um, there are pretty important differences, I think, with regard to ESG in the primary and the secondary market. Maybe you can uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the companies in the private markets definitely have had less uh, things that they need to disclose uh, historically. Uh, and we, when they come to the public markets, they have generally not been very well prepared. So we looked at all the IPOs from 2021 and 2022. And the truth is there's only a handful of companies during that period in Europe that actually came to the IPO with a satisfying degree of ESG disclosure. So there's a lot that needs to be done. And and here you mean satisfying for you or more satisfying for the uh, market? Satisfying for any ESG and any investor who would want to do a proper ESG analysis, analysis on their side. So right. we will do it. Um, but uh, of course, we know that some of the larger asset managers, they have ESG analysis departments and they can definitely do work on a company. But if there's no disclosure, there's just nothing to do. Uh, so... Ideally, you want to have sufficient disclosure that MSCI or Sustainalytics or ISS or S&P could actually make a score out of it. Uh, now, maybe they won't do it at IPO, but uh, they will be able to do it uh, as soon as possible afterwards. So the best in class companies we see now actually uh, start publishing their uh, ESC report uh, or sustainability report when they're starting to think about an IPO. So for example, you take Visma in Norway, which is a privately owned uh, software company. Uh, they have stated that they intend to list in 2023 or 2024. Um, and they've also published sustainability reports for 21 and 22. And they're continuing to do that. And you have as much disclosure as any public company would have. Yeah, I think that seems to be uh, an interesting bit. The, the first time getting rated by, by a major... ESG rater, because I imagine there will be a lot of funds that simply look at these ratings to understand where they would invest and where they wouldn't. So if there's a company, a new company that does that isn't rated yet, 
they might stay away. Uh, and then it will be interesting to have a prediction uh, of, of how the rating will come out once it happens. Uh, and, and, and that's, uh, I suppose that can be very interesting for you if you sort of know, okay, this company is going to be best in class. Uh, once they get rated, so so it will end uh, up in in lots of ESG fund portfolios. So so it's it's good to stay in. Yeah, definitely. You, I mean, your research is very interesting in that regard because basically what you are showing, right, is that the improvement of a company's ESG score is uh, leading to inflows from ESG funds, and in the market, it's it's clearly the case that most ESG funds are big users of scores. Right, uh, because that's a way to document and sort of create a framework for your ESG selection process. But uh, I'll, I'll take a parallel to my previous job, which was running the index portfolio. Uh, historically, you know, you had an IPO. You, if the company is of a sufficient size and sufficient liquidity, regardless of what it does, they would typically get included in an equity index such as MSCI or FTSE, um, maybe nine to 12 months after the IPO. Uh, and that drives uh, investment flows from passive funds. Uh, and it definitely helps in terms of future liquidity and uh, also investment performance. Uh, to me today, you, you, you need to couple that actually with the ESG score. And the ESG score takes a bit more time. It takes maybe 12 to 18 months to get it. Um, but that's also a big driver for uh, for a broadening of the investment base and, and returns, right? Yeah, you're right. We we have a current. Uh, I should uh, say it's a working paper where we show that uh, um, ESG fund flows respond to rating changes, and it's also in the current version uh, just for the U.S. market. So maybe that's uh, important to highlight. But uh, you would know better whether you see the same thing in in Europe as well. I think it's I think it's a global phenomenon, and I'll give one example here. Um, Vehalia, uh, Vehalia is a glass packaging producer, a French company uh -huh. but with uh, global operations, and uh, so they produce glass bottles for wine, for juices, for jars, for uh, for um, uh, for other foods, etc. And they listed in 2019. The company was historically a part of the French conglomerate Saint-Gobain, which is a glass specialist in general, but then mm -hmm. went through a period of uh, private equity ownership with uh, Apollo. Um, but when they listed in 2019, uh, ESG was already on the radar of a lot of funds, but it, there wasn't so much focus on disclosure. And if you look at Vianya's prospectus and its annual reports from those years, they really didn't publish anything about it. It was not an ESG story at all, um, but we actually invested in that IPO and we reinvested after and uh, in, in multiple blocks where Apollo sold down. Uh, and, and our thinking about it was more uh, the recycling aspect, right? Yeah, the company actually glass packaging is better than plastic packaging for uh, a lot of things, and because you can recycle. Uh, and even though they're a heavy energy user. Uh, they had a big strategy in terms of recycling. So uh, about a year and a half after listing in January 2021, the company actually published a very ambitious ESG strategy, something they hadn't done before. And there they highlighted all these points and set very ambitious targets in terms of uh, emission reductions and in terms of recycling uh, compared to what they had been doing before. Uh, and. I think that helped a lot in terms of broadening the appeal of the stock because um, you, you definitely see today that it's part of a number of Article 9 funds, so impact funds. And there's another point, which is that uh, you know the EU taxonomy, I think, is going to be very important, but they haven't actually published a guidance on circular economy yet. So right now, if you look at the Alia, it has no activities related to the taxonomy. But as the circular economy guidance gets published, I think Vialia is actually going to be one of the top companies in that uh, in that space. It's interesting. It almost seems to me that there is an equivalent uh, ESG story to the to the equity story, where you can think rather long term, uh, not 
constraint to uh, to ESG disclosure frameworks, really, but sort of what does this company do, and and where is it perhaps positioned to uh, to contribute to something genuinely useful uh, while turning a profit, of course. Because um, so I think that's a good way to think about companies. Uh, you know, they might. This is a glass company. Yes, they need a lot of energy. Uh, recycling is is an important aspect of that industry. Um, uh, there might be something else. I don't know how they uh, pay their employees, for example. That that is also something that you might want to look at, of course. But I think the real uh, leverage they have is is probably on that front. So I, I like it uh, to think about companies in that sort of in that ESG story way. And I think the taxonomy is very important here uh, because the goal of the taxonomy, of course, is directing capital flows right uh, towards what you're saying uh, industries that have a positive impact on uh, on the climate. And uh, I don't think we've really seen the full effect of the EU taxonomy yet, because companies are just now starting to publish their aligned revenues, capex and opex, uh, and uh, you're coming out with some very interesting results there. And I think as funds need to show uh, their alignment of the fund itself, like if, uh, as Article Eight or Article Nine funds need to show that alignment, uh, you will see a demand for high alignment uh, companies and these companies again this is something we look at at the time of the ipo uh, they they're actually quite active in the ipo space so i find that quite interesting because you're saying that i mean and we should discuss that whether this idea of how you, how did you say guiding capital towards uh, green activities I think that is the big question, how that actually really works and, and to what extent it works. But one interesting aspect you just mentioned is that you're looking at that already even before the taxonomy is fully in place. So so it's a bit of a, you know, you think this is where it's going. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, but but please let us in on that. What What is the, the rationale there? No, I, I think it's very important because to, to me, a taxonomy is... It's almost a common sense way to define what's aligned with what people consider to be green, right? It's not what people consider to be sustainable. It's what people consider to be green and contributing to to climate solutions. Uh, now, we are challenging each company that we see listing on that point. Have you already calculated your aligned uh, revenue, capex and opex? Uh, the answer right now is usually no, because as I said, uh -huh. they're not ready. Uh, but that will change in the next year. Uh, so I would expect any IPO that happens next year to probably have their uh, aligned uh, measures already in place. Uh, and But we look at this in advance because uh, I think that's, I think the, the taxonomy has a potential to, to, to not replace, but take over a lot of the importance of the ESG scores actually, uh, where because the number will be so visible to funds that are distributed in the EU, uh, that uh, the taxonomy itself will actually uh, drive capital flows in some way. I have some concerns that the taxonomy, uh, you are right, because it comes from the regulator, it has a lot of weight uh, and, and it's sort of it's a very clear guidance on for investors and companies what to sort of focus on. Um, I'm a little bit afraid of loopholes in the taxonomy, right? It's it's very easy. It's a very complicated uh, regulatory document. It's very long, um, so there is some a bureaucratic decision to some extent what what counts as as green or not. And and I see a bit of a risk of companies uh, carving out their little loopholes for whatever it is they're already doing. I, I actually think the risk is almost to the other side that the companies will tend to lowball their numbers because they're worried about, uh, about uh, lawsuits. Because of course, you put this in the annual report and you, it's an important number, right? Investors will base decisions on it. Uh, and as you're saying, if it's, gray, if it's a gray area, then you, <laughs> you might want to lowball the number. Uh, but on, in terms of the businesses, yes, you can't just, just rely on the taxonomy to say something is, is green, but it, it, it does provide a pretty good uh, basis and I mean you take a renewable energy producer yeah that 
they're basically 100% the mind, right? As long as they don't do anything uh, stupid. Um, yeah. and, and you take an electric vehicle producer, yes, that's probably aligned as well. So the common sense ones are included, uh, but then of course you probably get to some corner cases where a company that's improving its sustainability credentials are not is not necessarily um, uh, so uh, well uh, rewarded in the sense. Well, I think that will be a, a topic for a whole a different <laughs> podcast. What exactly the, the the pros and cons and the the potential for uh, for achieving its aims uh, of this regulatory approach are. Um, but I find it. You know, it's interesting to hear that it reaches out already into the private companies as they plan to uh, to IPO, uh, sort of with you know, basically foreseeing what the regulation will be once once uh, um, you know once once they operate. Um, uh, so I think we're we're already in the midst of the the third angle I wanted to talk about, which is impact. Uh, so. I think there is um, there's actually quite a bit of hope that um, participation in primary markets is is impactful um, because there's of course the argument that you know in the secondary market you just uh, trade shares for every buyer there's a seller um, so uh, you're limited to to price impacts and they are uh, you know they're not obvious at least. Uh, at this point in, in the primary market there's the hope that this is the point where uh where green companies really you know get their growth boost uh, uh, and um but i see two angles um and i'd like to take them in turn so leading up to an ipo there is uh on the one hand this possibility that a company let's say it's a renewable energy company and they need capital and uh, you know they find that capital by linking up with like-minded investors uh, and do the IPO, and it's sort of uh, uh, that that helps them to grow. Um, and they would have grown at a slower rate if they didn't IPO and didn't find these investors. So, so I think that's the one angle. It's sort of a growing a green company, and the other one is more a reform uh, angle. So there might be a company that. As it gears up to IPO, uh, listens, for example, to you uh, and thinks about transparency and disclosure. That's one perhaps relatively obvious step, but and that's why I want to go. Perhaps they will also think about, you know, emphasizing a certain line of business or actually reforming their business in a certain way uh, to be, uh, yeah, to to be more compliant with with ESG expectations. Um, so first of all, maybe do you see these two channels as well, or do you see another one? Yes. I mean, I completely agree. And, and uh, there's actually not many people talking about this. So I'm happy you bring it up, but, uh, I think it's always a challenging question. How do you have impact when you're trading public equities? Right. And, and I think the two ways to look at it, as you're saying, one is as an owner, you can have some soft power. You will vote and through the votes and your engagement with the company, you may be able to steer the company in a certain direction, but that's something that, you know, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund and some other very large index investors will use that soft power. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's, it's good, but at the same time, if you take a company that's uh, been listed for a long time. That's very free cloud cash flow generative. Uh, like Nestle, for example, um, they don't really need their investors that much. <laughs> you, you can choose to sell the shares, and that's not going to change much for that company uh, because they really don't need to raise any capital. Uh, but if you take a company that's uh, growing quickly and needs to. Uh, raise equity in order to support that growth. And as you're saying, the simplest example is a renewable energy company. You take um, EDP Renewables in Portugal. Uh, they're one of the large renewable energy companies in Europe. Um, they raised a billion dollars two months ago uh, in order to support their growth. And it's very important for them because they use that equity capital to put into projects and they raise additional debt supported by that equity capital. So it actually multiplies quite a lot. Uh, and, uh, and there that has very direct impact in terms of deploying more. 
So we've been we've been uh, contacted a lot by bankers um, by uh, companies that are operating in the energy transition space because these companies have a huge growth avenue in front of them. They have a lot of capital expenditure that they need to fund, and the public markets are actually the best way for them to raise that money. Uh, if you talk to a venture capitalist, they love the idea of investing in green, but they don't love the idea of investing in capex. <laughs> they want to invest in software or asset-like businesses, right? Um, private equity and especially infrastructure funds have a very important role to play, so there's nothing, nothing to be said there. Um, but public markets are a great way for a company to raise equity in order to support um, development of a product that's already been researched and is ready to be deployed. So one example, uh, I have a lot, but one example is uh, a French small cap company called Waga Energy that listed in September 2021. Um, it's a company that uh, was founded about 10 years ago uh, by former Air Liquide engineers. Uh, and they uh, have produced a technology that um, allows you to extract landfill gas from landfills and convert it to uh, renewable natural gas. So natural gas that you can stick straight into the pipeline. And this avoids uh, methane leaks from the, uh, from the landfills. And it can be exploited basically as a, as a source of gas going forward. And this company typically, uh, it had already raised quite a lot of money privately, uh, but they were at the cusp of uh, significant growth because they had deployed 10 sites already. They are looking to deploy 100. So they needed to raise a lot of capital and they raised uh, about 100 million euros uh, back in 2021 in order to develop globally their, uh, their business. Uh, so direct impact, and uh, this is something we really like because first of all, it's, you know, we have the, you know, you know where the proceeds from the IPO are going. They're going straight into projects. And uh, the companies also have just a huge growth avenue in front of them. So it's uh, it's very pro productive capital in a sense. Yes, I think uh, that is a really good point. The first example you mentioned, 2 billion euros uh, equity for a company that essentially builds renewable energy infrastructure is already a lot. And that will be leveraged again by debt. So, so it's it's simply a big ticket in terms of financing renewable energy infrastructure. And in terms of this, the, the speed as well, you have to remember that uh, EDPR raised a billion dollars overnight. That took them about two hours to get that done. And, and do you think that has to do with sort of the, the ESG story of it? So, so let me ask it this way. If you had, uh, you know, a bit of the, the skeptics retort could be, well, you know, if it's a good company based on the valuation and the track record and the management team, you know, they would anyways raise that capital. But uh, if you had sort of, you know, hypothetically that company compared to a similar uh, kind of uh, real assets heavy company that doesn't have this renewable energy story to it, it's maybe it's just something more mundane. Uh, Let's you can say think they, about they build warehouses. You can think about Glencore uh, or about uh, BHP yeah, or Anglo okay. American, so miners, for example. Exactly. Some maybe. So, so what would be the difference in in the IPO? Yeah. What what would be different? Well, the, the way we see it is again the attractiveness it can have to more investors over time. So, um, in 2022, for example, there was uh, because of the volatility, there weren't that many IPOs or deals that got done. Um, but actually, the ones that did get done were in the energy transition space because there you had both great growth opportunities, profitable growth opportunities, and uh, a supporting investor community that would support the shares over time. Start to say it was easy, but a lot of other things were not possible to do at all. Uh, so uh, it, it's definitely something where having this uh, energy transition sort of climate positive story is, uh, is supportive. So, so that boils down to to saying, I think that uh, let's say a renewable energy company has at this point preferred access to the capital market. They seem to have an advantage. Yes, and the most extreme example I think would be Tesla, the biggest <laughs> clean energy company in the world, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, right now, of course, there's a lot of stories about Elon Musk and Twitter, etc. But if you look back a few years ago, 
Tesla had no problem raising $5 billion in a single day without any discount to its market price. And you think about the, and, and they did that multiple times in a year. And you think about the advantage that that is for a company that's, um, that's building out a lot of factories compared to any of their uh, older auto OEM peers, right? Uh, do you think that Renault would be able to raise $5 billion uh, that easily? No, it's not, not the case, right? Interesting. Yes, I've, so, so, and, and I think that also brings us, you mentioned that with Nestle before, right? There's very different stages in the life cycle of a, of a company. And there, there comes this stage where, um, their growth is not so much constrained, uh, and, and they have multiple pots of money that they can tap their own revenue, uh, banks and, and so forth. But, um, there is this critical growth phase where, where really, a lack of capital would constrain the company's growth and, and, and easy access would make a big difference. I think that is, uh, that is a good case for, for impact. If you, you know, as an investor, you actually solve the problem that the company has at that point. Um, but it's interesting also that you don't do this alone, right? Sort of it, it, it the, everybody is part of it. There's the company that sees the moment when they have to do this. There's the underwriter, then there's a fund like yours that goes in early. And then there are the investors who come later. But that, that, that's, that's also to my point that it's not because I think there's a very strong case for this, that it's easy. Uh, and uh, one of the challenges, if we tie together the questions about impact and the questions about ESG in the more broader sense, is that um, I, I think the ESG uh, sort of compliance part has a risk of threatening the IPO of impact companies. I'll explain. So uh, if you look at the history, I looked at the history of the last three years, um, Article 9 funds. So Article 9 funds in the EU are supposed to be high impact funds, right? Um, now there were hundreds of IPOs in that space over the last three years. Uh, I don't think I could count more than five to 10% of the funds that actually participated in more than two IPOs. Uh, if I look at the holdings and that to me is a challenge, they will definitely come in later when the company is listed. And as I said, starts publishing its ESG report and starts coming on people's radars. Uh, but, uh, impacts funds are typically not set up to do the work around an IPO, which is why, uh, we're dependent on us and other people. Uh, taking an active part in this IPO process and uh, ensuring that the IPO gets done such that uh, it um, the company becomes listed and then can actually broaden the shareholder base afterwards. Well, I, I think that even uh, betters the case for, uh, you know, the, the impact of those funds that facilitate the IPO. I mean, another solution, of course, would be that most Article 9 funds simply do participate immediately when they see a good green company on the horizon. Um, but in the absence of that, uh, right, I think it's always a good way to think about the world without what you're doing and with what you're doing. And of course, the stronger the competition is, uh, uh, the, the less your own personal action maybe matters, but if there's less competition, if there's, as you said, in the beginning, there tends to be a lack of funds that participate in IPOs rather than an abundance. So from that perspective, it's, it's a good field to play if, uh, if you want to matter and probably also, and this is unique in terms of your return, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, we, we founded Amazon because we thought there was a need for it. I think if we, if we, if everybody starts participating in IPOs and becomes very active in the process, probably there wouldn't be any more need for us. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's almost, uh, uh it, it would be very good, but uh, at the same time, that's not the basis of our business, right? Yeah. Well, that's the dilemma of the entrepreneur. <laughs> right? You, uh, <laughs> you see a need, then you fill it, uh, and then others may come mm -hmm. as well. Um, I want to still maybe touch upon this other angle I mentioned. I could imagine that, uh, you know, in, in, I could imagine a reform in both ways. 
I could imagine a uh, founder-led company that was founded on, you know, very strong ethical values um, that would get watered down in preparation to an IPO uh, because people say, well, look, you're going to, you know, have to adapt a little bit to the to the laws of the market and, you know, we cannot have these uh, benefits for employees or whatever it may be. Um, so, so where it sort of gets toned down and watered down, uh, but I could also see the other direction where, uh, you know, a company that, um, has had little regard and, and simply played by the rules, but, but, but nothing beyond that, um, for environmental issues, let's say gets informed that this is actually something they have to first be able to speak about. And then perhaps as they start speaking about it also change uh, some of the things, uh, how they operate. Um, have you seen both of these directions? So the first one I think would be more uh, a US uh, approach, right? Uh, where there's still a okay. lot of debate about uh, is a stakeholder or shareholder capitalism and, uh, and uh, they can't seem to figure it out. So, so if Ben and Jerry's did an IPO in the US, but, you know, uh, there, there's actually quite a lot of examples of companies who are who have strong values that do IPOs in the U.S. I'm just saying that uh, you, you could see uh, some changes to that over time. But on, on the European side, uh, it's definitely more of your second point. We, we have clearly seen attempts at what you're saying, um, where um, the company understands quite late in the process that they need to have some ambitions in terms of sustainability. Uh, so, so far that's translated into usually one slide in the investor pitch book with uh, some targets uh, or some ambitions uh, in, the, in the sustainability space. But uh, again, our feedback is that that's usually not enough. We, we actually want to see some firm commitments. Uh, if you're setting serious net zero targets, you need to get to a science-based targets at some point. Um, if you uh, if you have some business you want to highlight that is more sustainable, then that needs to be a serious part of your business and not uh, not just something you're doing to uh, to show off. So so I think investors sniff out the the serious actors versus uh, the ones that uh, are doing it mostly for for marketing purposes. Uh, but yes. Uh, I, I think companies are taking it seriously and, and definitely the the coming scrutiny of public markets and ESG investors has an effect. I think uh, most companies do realize that even though they realize it a bit late. So usually we will tell them what we expect post-IPO and then we'll follow that up over the time post-IPO because we know it takes time to do these things. Ideally, the companies start preparing for it now if you consider an IPO next year or the year after might as well start doing your work on your sustainability report and your targets and, uh, and uh, emissions measurement, et cetera. But uh, if they haven't, then the ambition should be to get that sorted uh, in the 12 months post-IPO. Yeah. It's often difficult if you don't have a baseline to set a target, right? If there's, uh, I mean, the emission is a point. Which is why you need to start. You, you just don't know. You need to start early. It's... Uh, not uh, yes. not something you uh, can you can figure out in, in two weeks. I mean, we saw one company recently. Uh, we gave them very clear feedback about it. Uh, it's a company called Eurogroup Laminations that listed in Italy uh, now in February. Uh, so this is actually uh, a company that supplies stators and rotors, and they're the sole supplier to Tesla. So they play a very important part in the EV supply chain. And so there's clearly mm -hmm. kind of a energy transition uh, story here to uh, to look at and. Actually, Tesla putting down the prices and increasing volume is probably very good for them. But uh, mm -hmm. but on the disclosure side, they were not there. We challenged them on it, uh, and they ended up publishing a sustainability report a week before the IPO, which was clearly a bit rushed. Uh, but that's fine. They already started with something. Um, but ideally, we'd like to see that uh, much earlier in the process, so that people can can actually do their analysis. I think we're probably coming to an end. I, I like how we 
looked at that from various angles. Uh, I learned a lot about the IPO process and, and how the various ways in which ESG can play a role. Uh, we, we talked about the, the risk side, uh, how it may help in identifying risks, the investment sides, how it's important to um, you know, comply with some market expectations as you grow your investor base. And then this impact aspect uh, where on the one hand side, um, yeah, the, the, the ease of raising money when you need it is, is a really crucial point. Uh, uh, and then sort of the reform angle, which it seems to me mostly is in terms of uh, increasing transparency at, at this stage, uh, right? I think sort of a fundamental uh, pivot in, in what you do as a business is, is probably unlikely. Also, as you mentioned, it's usually... You know, time is usually short, so so it may still be enough to 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 give out a sustainability report, uh, but uh, uh, probably not. Um, you know, uh, as I said, a pivot of of business activities that that's probably not really in store. There's something that companies that are considering IPOs over the next two or three years can definitely do something about. So any company that's private equity owned, where the private equity owner is considering an IPO. Uh, companies that are in the tech space, you know, they're very successful pre-IPO. They know they will probably need to list in the next two, three years. All these companies can prepare now. They can just start now and then they'll be much better equipped when they arrive at the IPO stage. And I think it's sometimes underestimated how these, um, you know, you could call them vague uh, ideas, influence the strategy process um, because one view is, well, you know, companies simply do what's profitable and, uh, you know, in the long run, that's correct. If they don't do that, they go under, but uh, looking to the future, there's always lots of ambiguity. What is the right thing to do? What you should emphasize, how much you should do it, when you should do it. And, and it seems to me considerations like that, they, they can shape, uh, you know, what a company does. I think a sustainable business model is one that's going to be around for a very long time, right? You actually have to think about uh, if your business is proof to um, upcoming regulation, climate risk in the future, opportunities that come, and you want your business to be around for, for decades, right? It's not just about the year after IPO. <laughs> And uh, so, so uh, I think the, this sustainability picture should play into any corporate strategy in that way. Uh, as I said, I think it's uh, it's basically common sense. You need to think about those aspects. And uh, notwithstanding what regulators are doing, we know one thing, and that is these sustainability challenges are not going away. So, uh, so it, it's definitely a good uh, good thing to to know how you position yourself towards them. Um, well, I think we should wrap it up. I want to give you the opportunity, if you have a wish for the coming year, what would you like to see happening in your field? Yes, I thought a lot about that and I have a lot of wishes, but actually the biggest wish is that what we talked about regarding energy transition related companies raising capital happens. Because if you look at the, uh, the deployment of capital each year that is needed towards meeting the Paris uh, Paris targets, the we're just not there yet at all, right? Uh, I think we're maybe at twenty percent to twenty five percent of what's needed every year. And as I said, equity capital markets can contribute a lot to that. So what I would like to see is actually an avalanche of companies that are in that area that see great opportunities and that we need to raise significant amounts of capital. Uh, EDPR is a good example. I think there's a lot of other companies that can grow and become sort of the large cap companies in that space. And, uh, you know, as regulation eases and it becomes more, uh, it becomes easier to deploy projects as EV adoption uh, grows significantly. There's just so many opportunities in the space and we have a pretty good pipeline. Uh, we have at least 30 to 40 companies that we are looking at that we think will IPO in the next few years. But uh, I'd like to see that grow two or threefold, right? Uh, and uh, 
that's my biggest wish. Fantastic wish. I, I can only concur. Um, thank you so much for taking the time per and, and let us in to your thinking uh, on this relationship between IPO and ESG. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Julian. Uh, so for those of our listeners who would like to learn more about the IPO process, we also launched a podcast called IPO Stories, uh, where we interview different stakeholders about their experience uh, with the IPO. Innovations in Sustainable Finance, a University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel.